this far this summer with our summer series through some of the parables of Jesus. We have covered a few parables of the kingdom and a few parables of salvation. And while some have classified our parable this morning as a parable of judgment, and understandably so, biblical scholar James Montgomery Boyce classifies it as a parable of wisdom and folly. And I hope that you will see this morning this, uh, why this is a fitting category for this parable. It will be the first of two parables of wisdom and folly that we will cover this Sunday and next. Let us pray and ask the Lord to bless our reading and hearing of his holy word. O Lord, send us your Holy Spirit, we pray, that as we read this, your holy word, it might accomplish your purposes in us. May it convict us of our sin, convert us to be your beloved children, quicken us in faith that we would be transformed evermore into the image of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. For we pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is, comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to begin this morning with some statistics. I, I like statistics. I think that they can be very useful in helping us think about what might be unspoken and maybe even unconscious beliefs and behaviors. So here are some statistics for you that you might find interesting. A Barna study published in 2003 revealed that about 81% of Americans believe in life after death. 81%, that's a pretty high percentage for any question on any survey. 76% of the participants in the study believed that heaven exists. Again, that is a really high number, although what the participants understood heaven to be was pretty varied, with less than 50% holding a biblical understanding of heaven. So while 76% believed that heaven exists, 
71% believed that hell exists. So a few less believe, but still a pretty high number. As was the case with belief about heaven, though, what those involved in this study understood about hell also varied greatly, with less than 40% holding to what might be considered a biblical understanding of hell. Nonetheless, these broader categories had surprisingly high percentages, at least in my opinion. Let me give you another surprising percentage from this study. Half of 1%. Half of 1%. This is the percentage of the people in this study who believe that if they were to die around the time of participating in this study, that they would go to hell. Half of 1%. Now, I'm not a social scientist, but I find it curious that 71% of those participating in the study believed in the existence of hell, but almost no one believed that they themselves were going there. And you can guess the reasons why the participants believe that they would be going to heaven from confessing their sins and accepting Jesus as Savior to assessing themselves to be pretty good people, to an understanding that God's love for everyone excludes a possibility of hell as punishment. So, to sum up, in Americans' minds, there is more than likely a hell, but it is either almost entirely unoccupied or it is occupied by people other than ourselves. Allow me to give you a few more numbers. In 2018, Ligonier Ministries conducted a study on the theological beliefs of Americans, which found that 54% of people believe that hell is a real place where certain people will go to be punished forever. That statement is a little bit more specific than Barna had phrased their statement on hell. And not surprisingly, the percentage is a lot lower. On a somewhat encouraging note, 85% of people who identified themselves as evangelicals responded in the affirmative to that statement. 85% of evangelicals believed there is a literal hell for the most part. Interestingly, though, An even higher number of evangelicals, 92%, believe that Jesus will return and judge all people who have ever lived. So somehow, more evangelicals believe that Jesus will return to judge than believe his judgment could lead to an eternal punishment for some. That doesn't really add up. But let me give you just a couple more numbers. 88% of those claiming to be evangelicals believed that, the, that only those who trust in Jesus alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Of course, in the same study, only 39% of evangelicals reportedly expressed belief that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. And this reveals something very disturbing, I believe. Again, I'm not a social scientist, but I think it tells us that those calling themselves evangelicals in America believe, by and large, in the existence of hell. 
They believe that putting faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. They believe that Jesus will return again to judge all people, but they don't really believe in the seriousness of sin and therefore in God's holiness. Which makes me wonder what we evangelicals think Jesus died for. Do you see the issue here? This isn't the agnostic or the atheist. This is a self-proclaimed evangelical who is saying, on the one hand, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and yet, on the other hand, God isn't all that offended by my sin, and so my sin doesn't deserve the wrath of God. Well then, what exactly do we need to be saved from? It calls into question if people really understand what true faith is and the consequence of not having true faith. As one evangelist writes, too often people do not see that they are in real danger. They often have an uncanny sense that evil is real and that some sort of hell or punishment exists, but they don't believe that they will ever be affected by these realities. But apparently this is not a new problem. You see, this parable serves to remind us that there is a real danger. And it is a call to wisdom and a warning to avoid foolishness, not to the atheist or agnostic, but to the religious, to the regular churchgoer. We are the target audience for this parable. It is a poignant story to help those of us who might just feel a little too cozy with God to examine ourselves to see if our belief that we are safe before God Almighty is in line with reality or whether we are providing ourselves with a false sense of security and a false hope for an eternity in God's presence in his everlasting kingdom. And Jesus gets at this by telling the story of these 10 virgins or bridesmaids who immediately are identified by Jesus as foolish and wise. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. Verse 2. Now, before we move forward with the story, I think it's important to remember that these classifications of wise and foolish have a biblical context. Who is the fool according to Scripture? The fool is the one who, according to the Proverbs, despises wisdom and instruction and who takes no pleasure in understanding. The fool is the one who trusts in himself and in his own mind. The fool is the one who has very little or no control over his lips. The fool is the one who is reckless and careless. The fool is the one who finds delight in folly. These are some of the ways... The fool is described in Proverbs. The Psalms have something to say about the fool as well. The fool is the one who denies God. Psalm 14, 1, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is the same thing, by the way, the Apostle Paul is getting at in his epistle to the Romans chapter 1. The mark of foolishness is refusing to acknowledge God in exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images of created things. So labeling someone a fool is a serious matter. The fool is not simply one who is silly and acts in an immature ignorance. 
It seems then like a rather harsh identification of five of these virgins, right? After all, these young women are among those waiting for the bridegroom to come. Surely they count themselves to be friends of the bridal party. They have accepted the invitation to the wedding. They are eager to go to the festivities and participate in them. If the fool is the one who you don't ever want to associate with and the one who denies God, then it doesn't seem to be a very fitting description of these women, right? They are in almost every way the same as the wise virgins. But there is one difference. As the parable highlights, this one difference makes all the difference in the world. And what is the difference? They had not properly prepared for the coming of the bridegroom. They had not readied themselves for the possibility that his arrival would be delayed, so they did not have enough oil in their lamps, which meant that their lamps would go out, resulting in their inability to be in the streets at night. In other words, they would not be able to greet the bridegroom when he arrived, if he arrived in the darkness, and they would not be able to follow him into the wedding festivities. And this is precisely what happened. The bridegroom took longer than expected, and the foolish virgins realized their error, but it was too late. The other bridesmaids, fearing that none of them would have enough oil, would not share their oil reserves with those who were lacking. What a disaster it would be, after all, if the bridegroom arrived and found no one to meet him. So those without tried to go to the dealer to buy more, but the bridegroom arrived in the meantime, and everyone who was prepared left for the great celebration. And the door was shut before the foolish virgins could return. And once shut, the door would not be reopened, for it was insulting for the guests to arrive late to the party. And as we really dig into this parable, Jesus' point here becomes clear. There are those who, by most appearances, do not seem to be fools. They don't seem to be those who despise wisdom or deny God, but in fact, they do. They might say the right things. They might spend the majority of their life with the right people in the right place. But all the while, they are handling the most important things, or rather not handling them in this case, properly, which reveals the truth of who they really are. You see, there are some who might profess Jesus with their lips, but who are in the most important ways denying him with their lives. They aren't openly scoffing at God, but nonetheless, they are not the tree described in Psalm 1, which is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And here's a warning from Jesus. There are those among us in the church who will be revealed to be fools. Here in this parable, it was those who were not prepared because they expected the bridegroom to return sooner. In the verses immediately preceding this passage, we find the opposite scenario. 
in the wicked servant of chapter 24 who anticipates the master to be delayed and takes the opportunity to pull one over. But he finds himself caught by the master's early arrival. The message is hard to ignore. We must always be prepared to meet our God and our judge. The fool is the one who is unprepared. It is Proverbs 6 applied to faith. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest in poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Wisdom, you see, is knowing what to do in a given situation. It includes not only knowledge, though, it is the ability to apply that knowledge appropriately in the circumstance. The ant knows the winter is coming and so works to store up food in the time of plenty. In terms of faith, wisdom is the knowledge of what it means to live rightly before the Lord. And it is also the skill of living rightly before the Lord. The virgins who had extra oil reserves were wise because they not only knew to wait for the coming bridegroom, but they knew what that waiting must look like, what was required of them in their waiting. They understood that the bridegroom might come at any time. It could be sooner or it could be later, so they must be ready for any scenario. And being ready for them involved making sure that their lamps were always burning in order that they might appropriately greet the bridegroom whenever he arrived. He was the honored guest, and therefore he must be honored in their preparation. But Jesus presents us with a sad reality here. There are some among us who are not prepared are not prepared for their master to return home, are not prepared for the bridegroom who arrives at an unexpected hour, are not prepared for the one who comes like a thief in the night. And Jesus gives us a number here, 50%. 50% of those who count themselves as among those who are awaiting his arrival are not actually truly prepared in this parable. And their lack of preparation reveals that Jesus is not truly honored in their hearts. Jesus has already said that there are weeds among the wheat who will be sifted out and destroyed in due time. Now, I don't think that Jesus means to give us a one-to-one correlation in this parable. He isn't saying that 50% of the visible church are weeds. Rather, I think he intends to shock us with the reality that there are many among the visible church who will be found to be excluded from the church triumphant. There are many who are believed to have true faith or believe themselves to have true faith who in reality do not. A pastor who did college ministry tells the story of a female student who was very involved with her InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on our campus. The pastor described the student as having high morals, 
as being kind to others. He reported that she was friendly and outgoing. This is what you would expect of a Christian young woman. But the pastor observed that she had very little to say when it came to how the scriptures were a part of her life. And she also failed to express any specific biblical content in her witness to non-Christians. The pastor decided then, even though many assumed that this student was a Christian, he decided to ask her to what she attributed her confidence that she was converted. This is what she said, quote, When I was 13, I remained in my church sanctuary after the morning service. It was a lovely day, and the sun was shining through the stained glass windows, creating vivid patterns. I felt all warm, good, and peaceful. And the pastor waited, expecting more. But that was it. Unfortunately, I don't think that this young woman's story is all that unique. You see, there are many people in the church who have good hope, but with absolutely no foundation for it. There are many in the church who are unconverted Christians, as it were. Could it be that this is true of any of us? And we should understand that it isn't that God wants us to be unsure of our salvation. That isn't the issue here. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome telling them, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And Paul tells them, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God tells us through his word that we can rest assured in his promises offered to us in Jesus Christ that are ours through faith. But the parable is encouraging us to examine whether we do, in fact, have true faith in which to have a blessed assurance. Jesus wants to open our eyes to the reality that there are some and perhaps many who are fooling themselves as to their possession of the promises of God in Jesus Christ and who will be shown to be fools. This parable then tells us of the dangers of the unblessed assurance. An assurance based not in reality but in delusion based not in truth, but in falsehood. And this parable leaves us with the harsh truth that the foolish virgins made a grave mistake. They believe that just because they had accepted the invitation to the wedding party, that this guaranteed them of their participation in it. And we too can fool ourselves into thinking that just because we have accepted an invitation to attend church, an invitation to walk the aisle, an invitation to have fellowship with believers, that just because we have a desire to go to heaven somehow means we will. But a desire to go to heaven does not guarantee you of your salvation. Attending church does not guarantee you of your salvation. Having fellowship with believers does not guarantee you of your salvation, nor does growing up in a Christian home or participating in a Bible study or going on a mission trip. 
There's only one thing that guarantees you of being forgiven of your sins, reconciled to God, and saved from the dominion of darkness. And that is having a true and living faith in Jesus Christ, one in which Christ alone is accepted, received, and rested on for justification, sanctification, and eternal life in the power of the covenant of grace. And it could be, It could be for some that they simply have not closely examined God's word about what saving faith is and requires. They might have grown up in the church and have spent a lot of time around Christians, and so they have by default believed themselves to be Christian. But they themselves might not have ever actually encountered the Lord Jesus Christ through God's word in a way that they have been converted from death to life. And it could be that they have never actually repented of their sins and turned to the Lord Jesus to find newness of life. This is what true faith requires of each one of us. And this parable makes clear to us that faith is not transferable. The virgins each had to have their own oil. They could not get by on the oil of others. It doesn't matter what home we have grown up in, who our parents and grandparents are. It doesn't matter how faithful the church was that we attended. It doesn't matter who we befriended. And I don't want to minimize those things. Those are all wonderful gifts from God. But at the end of the day, it is only by our own faith that we are allowed to enter through the door to God's everlasting kingdom. At some point, we have to take possession for ourselves of the faith that is demonstrated in the lives of those around us. Parents, parents, we need to be ensuring, therefore, that our children will be equipped as best as possible to make a decision of faith for themselves. We need to also be praying to God. We need to be praying for God by the power of his spirit to lead our children in this way because we are utterly incapable of guaranteeing conversion in our children's lives. It is a work of God alone. But assuming that we can be a Christian by default is not the only scenario for those who will be found to be fools within the church. There might be others who think, to themselves that they would like to be a Christian, but they have looked at what true faith requires of what the Christian life is and have decided for themselves that it is possible for them to be a Christian, but not yet. St. Augustine in his work entitled Confession recalls his prayer as he examined the Christian faith. Increasingly, he had become convinced the gospel of Jesus Christ was true. And as he did, he also became increasingly convicted of his own sinfulness and aware of the demands that placing faith in Jesus Christ would have on his life. As the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, by this faith, a Christian believes whatever is revealed in the word to be the true, authentic, authoritative statement of God himself. By this faith, the believer also acts according to what particular passages in the word say. By faith, the believer humbly submits to and obeys God's various commands. He trembles at God's awesome threats and eagerly embraces his promises about this life and the life to come. So Augustine prayed. 
give me chastity and continence, but not yet. He knew that only in being freed from his worldly desires would he be free to pursue the life-giving joy of the Lord. But as Augustine writes, I was afraid that the Lord would answer my prayer at once and cure me too soon of the disease of lust, which I wanted satisfied, not quelled. We too might be praying, Lord, I want to be a Christian but not yet. We might be banking on being able to make a deathbed confession of sin and profession of faith. This parable is a warning, though, that living in this manner is a huge gamble because no one knows the day nor the hour when we will be called upon to give account for this life that the Lord has given us. A delay in repenting of our sins and turning to the Lord for newness of life is a risk that carries eternal consequence. Because it is a decision to deny God now in hopes that things will work out when we want them to. But God does not operate according to our schedule or timetable. And the parable makes very clear that the moment of examination is not the time for preparation. Some things must be prepared for well in advance. Charles Spurgeon once told a story of a rich ship owner who was visited by a godly man. The Christian asked, well, sire, what is the state of your soul? To which the merchant replied, soul? I have no time for taking care of my soul. I have enough to do with taking care of my ships. But he was not, as Spurgeon notes, too busy to die, which he did about a week later. This parable calls us to examine whether we are too busy with the cares and pleasures of this world to concern ourselves with placing faith in Jesus Christ and following after him today. I can tell you one thing, death is no respecter of our busyness. It does not respect our plans, it does not respect our schedule, and none of us are too busy, too important, too scheduled to die. So this parable proclaims loudly and clearly that there is no time like the present to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Missed opportunities to believe in the Lord Jesus and follow after him could be lost forever. And there might be yet others who have looked at God's word and what the Christian is called to be and convinced themselves it is possible to be a Christian, but not too much. And their prayer might be, Lord, I want to be a Christian, but not fully. Just like the foolish virgins thought that they could have a little oil, but they didn't need too much, we too might be fooling ourselves that our profession of faith is a good one, but our lives might be shown to be counterfeit in terms of our faith. This parable reveals to us that true faith doesn't allow us to pick and choose which aspects of God's word we decide to believe. We must be prepared in every way or we are not prepared at all. And being prepared for the return of Jesus means obeying his word. This is what we want to be found doing when he returns or calls us to give account of the life he has given us. In other words, we can't be good with embracing the promises about the life to come, but not so eager to humbly submit to and obey God's commands now. 
So even as we acknowledge that we are not saved by good works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we recognize that good works are not unimportant. True faith is a faith that burns bright through our living. As Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Or as Martin Luther says in his preference, his preface to the commentary on St. Paul's epistle to the Romans, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. Are you prepared then? What does your life say about the validity of your faith? Branches that are connected to the vine produce fruit in due season. Therefore, we should be asking the Lord, as Moses does in Psalm 90, to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is the wisdom that this parable encourages. We do not know when the time will come to stand before God's throne and give account for our lives. If we fail to number our days aright, then we will not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But rather we will hear, you fool. We want to be as wise as the virgins were who had a reserve of oil. We want to be as those prepared to die and as those prepared to live eternally in God's everlasting kingdom. So are you ready? Do you indeed have a blessed assurance? Or are you living with an assurance that will be proven to be a lie because it has been gained by a faith that is shown to be a fraud? Brothers and sisters, may God's word encourage us this day to examine ourselves and prove Jesus is truly ours by faith. Don't delay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that Jesus has come. He is the image of the invisible God. He has come to redeem us, to call us home. God, I pray that we would have open ears, open minds, open hearts to hear his word to us, to hear his call to come and to follow him. And Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us hearts that are eager and ready and willing to leave our lives behind and to chase after him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. In response to the word of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father.